So Lord, speak to our hearts, speak to our needs, and equip us for those opportunities that we have of serving you in our daily lives and rising to that potential that you have for each and every one of us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Travelling to the south coast recently, I arrived at Victoria Station only to find that uh, most of the trains down to the south coast had either been cancelled or severely delayed. And the reason on this occasion, sadly, was that somebody had gone under a train at East Croydon Station. And the whole of the southern network was put completely out for most of the rest of the day. I reckon that I've probably heard that similar kind of announcement as I travel on London underground, on the average I would think once a month for the last 18 months or two years. It is sadly all too common. The immediate effect of course for thousands of people is that they have their plans disrupted. The effect on the family whose person has, uh, whose uh, member of the family has gone under the train is of course absolutely devastating. Uh, And uh, that uh, Devastation goes on for sometimes weeks, years, months, and a whole lifetime. The figure of those taking their own lives during the most recent year I could find, um, 2013, was estimated at just over 5,000. That is a lot of people in a country of our size. And only at the beginning of last week there was a news item informing us that the number of self-inflicted deaths in our prisons had risen from 79 to 100 during the previous year. It paused me to uh, just sit down and write a list of people who had been known to me personally through my lifetime, beginning, I think, from the time when I was a teenager uh, and a friend of our family took their own life, um, And without searching my memory too deeply, I came up with a list of about nine people. Of course, behind every statistic, there is a story. And the sad thing about suicide statistics is that we usually find it hard to discover or even imagine what that story is. And besides those people for whom depression uh, in life has gone so deep and life has become so dark that they've decided to end it all, There are many, many other people who have depression of one sort or another, at one level or another, um, and who survive, but who have to live with it. We know some of the causes, don't we, that lead to deep depression, the deep depression that finds its minds into the way of many, many people. There are, of course, physical causes. Sometimes for women it may be postnatal depression. Sometimes there's evidence that depression can be caused by genetic factors, and some medications can trigger off depressions. And then there are social causes as well, going through a challenging uh, period at work or a period that seems to have no end to it, which is challenging, Uh, when perhaps the expectations of the company are unreasonable or relationships with people, key people that we work with, have become soured. Or um, people that we just find difficult to deal with. Whilst most of us might not say that we've got enemies, uh, most of us probably have had the experience at some time or other of having to rub shoulders with people who want to do us down if they get the chance. Or there may be a breakdown, a major breakdown in family relationships, marriage breakdown, or a sharp rift between children and parents. 
financial pressures that seem to have no relief. And that's something that uh, perhaps we don't up and open up about as much as we might. Living with a very heavy dose of negative items about human suffering on the news is something else that causes some people depression. People who sit and watch the news day after day and you know what we get fed with, so much of which is negative. And for people particularly who live alone and watch this, have nobody to discuss it with, sometimes they find themselves getting deeper and deeper into a depression. It's interesting that most of the causes of depression raise their heads somewhere in the book of Psalms. I love the Psalms because they raise just about every human emotion that there is. Uh, And the psalmists are so often honest with God. And if they're feeling down in the dumps, they say so. Psalm 2 talks about the psalmist's despair at what is happening on the international front. Why do the nations rage? Psalm 3 talks about his enemies. Psalm 6, the psalmist talks about what it's like to have painful bones and many tears. And of course, Psalms 42 and 43 that are closely linked together explore the issue more deeply with that recurring phrase, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? And Psalm 40 talks about the miry pit. And I guess there are times when probably most of us have been in the Mari Pit. Sometimes people who are well-known people, people even who can lift our lives with their humour, actually in their own lives, know a good deal of depression. Somebody who's been well-known as a broadcaster over the years is the Jewish rabbi Lionel Blue, who suffers from the blues. He says, My greatest problem is so humdrum and small that it might seem silly. Like lots of ordinary people, I suffer from stress, worry and mild depression as I face each day. On bad days, I can't draw the curtains and the telephone makes me tremble. My problem is not great or grandiose, it's just laughable, although crippling. For some people, depression is crippling. Now, this isn't a lecture about depression. If it were, I would not be the person standing here giving it, because I'm not an expert on the subject. It is a very complex topic, of course. But in its severest form, it can lead to total isolation and a desire to end life, um, which makes it such a dreaded enemy. And along with physical causes and social causes that I've mentioned, I think we need to be clear as Christian people that there can also be spiritual causes, Causes that arise out of the fact that we are Christians. Let me just mention two of them. One being guilt. You all know the name of Martin Luther, of course, the great um, author of the the Reformation. Uh, He rediscovered the gospel of God's grace that was sadly so lacking in the church into which he was brought up. He'd been brought up in the uh, church of Rome, um, a church which was full of Rules, regulations, um, expectations of people, um, the way forward for confessing sins, um, the, the payments that had to be made, um, and, and so on. And in order to try and please God, he became a monk. But instead of finding that he pleased God, he felt that he was further and further away from pleasing God. The more he did, the more he felt he'd failed. 
And I remember watching a film about Martin Luther on one occasion, in which he's pictured padding about in his cell as a monk um, and confessing a long list of sins, most of which were extremely trivial. I was late for prayers this morning. I've eaten some luxury food that I ought not to have eaten. As if those were the things that really displeased God. But they were the things that got him down. They're the things that he felt he was really letting God down in. It seemed that the more he was trying to please God, the more conscious he became as to how he was failing. And the causes were so often trivial rather than serious. And Luther himself endured many, many instances of depression in his life. He described the experience in various terms. Sometimes he talked about melancholy or heaviness, depression, dejection of spirit, downcast, sad, downhearted. And he suffered in this area for much of his life. And these things are often revealed in his, in his writings. And it was an excess, a lot of it was a, an excessive level of guilt that contributed towards much of Martin Luther's melancholy and depression. Trying to please God with endless rituals and observances really is a recipe for disaster in terms of mental health. Because the gospel is the gospel of God's grace, where we are invited to come and respond to his grace by confessing our sins and then, uh, with simple gratitude, accepting the forgiveness that he offers. And if you feel that you're walking around with a great burden of guilt around you, I would invite you to just stop and examine that burden of guilt. Of course, there are things we should, most of us, need to be bringing to God from time to time with penitence. We need to bring them to him, we need to confess them, we need to ask for his forgiveness, and then we need to receive it. And we need to put the things behind us. But it may be that there are things that are weighing us down unnecessarily and unreasonably. And if we have an excessive level of guilt in our lives, then we need to deal with it. We need to get a proper perspective on it before it causes us to get everything else in life out of perspective. That is one particular thing that can cause a great deal of, uh, be a cause of depression for people who are Christians. I think there's another, what I would call, religious cause of depression. And that is what we might call becoming battle-scarred. And that's really why I chose this reading tonight from the Old Testament about the prophet Elijah. As you know, Elijah was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And God called him at the particular time of Israel's history uh, to stand against the idolatry that was pervading the land of Israel, brought in very largely under the influence of Jezebel, the wife of the king, King Ahab. And the story of the challenge to the prophets of Baal is a long one. Chapter 18, chapter 19, particularly in that first book of Kings. You're probably familiar with much of the story as it uh, reaches its climax, where he challenges the 450 prophets of Baal to a duel on Mount Carmel to see who could be the first to bring down fire from heaven. Jezebel had already been waging war against uh, many of the prophets of the Lord, the God of Israel. And when Elijah won his battle against these prophets, uh, when he was the one who managed to call down fire, when they were unable to call down fire from heaven, Jezebel was so enraged that she threatened to have his life. And by now, Elijah was feeling drained. 
because he'd been all psyched up, as we say, for the battle, for the confrontation. He was battle-scarred. And worse still, he felt alone. He felt abandoned. And he complained to God, I'm the only one of your prophets left, and they're trying to take my life. And that phrase comes into the story not just once, but three times. He experienced this very deep sense of isolation. And there are times when we're called to engage in battle, aren't there? As Christian people, for what is right, or to stand for what is true. That's not surprising, because we're called to follow in the steps of our Lord Jesus, and it was never promised that life in the Christian way would be easy. I think it was two or three weeks ago that Tony took us the title for his sermon, Christus Victor. Um, it's one of the great themes in the New Testament, Christ the Victor, uh, where the um, work of Jesus is described as a battle against the forces of evil, um, which reached their culmination, of course, on the cross, and the victory of the resurrection. The work of Jesus being presented as a battle against sin, selfishness, sickness, and everything else that spoils life as God intended it to be. And if we are faithful to our discipleship as Christian people, we may well find that this means us becoming involved in some of the battles that need to be fought, campaigning for things, whether it be human rights or battling for the needs of the homeless, battling for the dignity and the, uh, of oppressed people, like the victims of the caste system, or battling against anti-Christian teaching. And whatever battle we are engaged in, um, we are liable at some stage to feel weary, to become drained, maybe in danger, maybe to feel isolated, maybe to finish up as if we feel we're the only one who's battling for whatever it is. And we can find ourselves suffering from that battle-scarred depression. And the Apostle Paul refers to something similar uh, when he tries to describe some of the intense emotional pressures that he was under, uh, and Timothy as well, one of the, his assistants, uh, when they were engaged in Christian mission. He uses the Greek word barrio, which means pressed down or weighed down. And religious depression caused by either undue levels of guilt that I was mentioning earlier, or becoming battle-scarred in our service for God. Those two things are all too common. And it's important that we recognise them, see them for what they are. And it's helpful to be aware that these two specifically uh, religious factors can lead us into a depression, along with all the other physical causes and social causes that there are. And so before we finish our reflection, let me invite you to ask two questions. First of all, how can we help somebody else when they become depressed, for whatever reasons? And secondly, how can we help ourselves if we happen to be the person who is depressed? First of all, how can we help somebody else? Well, we don't always help people in the way as we should or as well as we should do it. Um, it's very easy for us to become quite impatient with people who are suffering from depression. When it comes to the more serious matter of people who um, have found depression, they just can't cope with any longer and they take their own life, the Christian Church has certainly not been very sympathetic towards suicide um, victims. Um, right up until the Second Vatican Council in 1962, 
permission always had to be sought from a bishop before a Catholic priest was able to conduct a funeral service for somebody who had taken their own life. And that kind of practice, which was reflected in some other denominations as well, just sends out a judgmental message, lacking in compassion and understanding. And in the story of Elijah, of course, we find a very different response from God towards Elijah's depression. Elijah felt drained and deserted. He was depressed, he was wanting to end his life, but he wasn't entirely deserted. And God wanted to say certain things to Elijah. He had more work for him to do, but there was something that needed to be done first. And God sent a messenger with hot cakes and a pitcher of water. And Elijah ate and drank and then lay down and he was touched by God's messenger for a second time, encouraging him to eat before the stage of the next journey. If we're trying to help somebody in a time of depression, then words and logical arguments are probably not likely to get very far. Inviting somebody around for a cup of coffee or taking them for a meal baking the hot hot scones, the pitcher of water, are likely to be a little bit more helpful. TLC, first steps. The Christian Church has a number of retreat centres up and down the country where it's possible for people to go and stay and crash out, as we call it, in an atmosphere of Christian care and prayer. And the best centres request people to when they come to their mealtimes, if they're sitting with other people who've also come to crash out, not to talk about their problem, not to talk about why they're there, but just to enjoy the hospitality, to be strengthened so that they can start to unravel life and move on. And of course, praying for people who are going through a time of serious depression is an essential first step. Because if we pray, then God will prompt us and show us the right moment to appear with the, uh, the cakes and the pitcher of water and uh, the practical things. The other question is, what about ourselves? What about if we find ourselves in those times of depression? Well, at the beginning of the sermon this evening, I did say um, that I wanted to avoid giving a lecture about the subject because I'm not an expert. And I also want to avoid the the suggestion of giving simplistic answers to what is a complex question. And uh, just to turn around to somebody who's going through a period of deep depression and say, well, of course, you just need to say the Lord's Prayer before you go to bed and then you'll go to sleep. Um, There's no good coming up with simplistic solutions like that. Life is not as simple as that. But I believe there are helpful pointers. One of the many sermons that John Wesley wrote um, and that are printed in his collection of sermons is a title, uh, a sermon entitled Heaviness Through Manifold Temptations. Now, I doubt whether if we had advertised that title of the sermon outside the front door this evening, we should have suddenly tripled the congregation. I should think it might have turned people off. Heaviness Through Manifold Temptations. But in that sermon, he lists some of the things that make life going... F- heavy going for people, uh, such as physical illness and pain and calamity and bereavement. But he acknowledges, too, that there's something even deeper 
and more damaging to our emotional and spiritual health. And that he, he calls that not heaviness, but darkness. And darkness describes those periods when the peace of God seems to have vanished from our lives and we have no love left at all. And for some people that will be a helpful distinction. The distinction just between being simply heavy and finding life stodgy and on the other hand finding that life is totally dark. And in a stage of life if we're going through heaviness, if we struggle or experience with this heaviness as John Wesley we can continue to rejoice in the Lord because the rejoicing in the Lord that Paul talks about is not based on what we feel, it is based on what we do and what we say. And that injunction to rejoice in the Lord at all times, remember, comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul at a time when he was in prison. And he didn't know what we call uh, these days in prison his ERD, his expected release date because there wasn't necessarily one at all. He didn't know even whether he'd get out. Um, And yet, in the midst of those circumstances, he was able to talk about rejoicing in the Lord. If we're going through a testing time in life, we need to keep up the praise. And the words that are at the centre of so many Christian liturgies, lift up your hearts, we lift them to the Lord, and that go on to say, it is right and proper at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, O Lord. Those things are not about how we feel, but they're about how we react to God's goodness and how we act. Praise helps us keep going when the, when the, the pathway is stodgy. What Wesley calls darkness is more difficult, of course. The times when the peace of God has vanished and we feel that we've lost our love for him and for everyone and everything else in life. I'm not the best person to speak about that because I'm not one of these people who suffers from depression. Um, But there is a helpful clue, I think, that comes to us, helpful clues that come to us from the writings of many people. But one of the helpful clues for me is always uh, something that comes from the pen or came from the pen of Leslie Weatherhead. Leslie Weatherhead was a Methodist minister uh, in, for many years in the last century and for about a quarter of a century was lent to the Congregational Church and was minister of the City Temple Church um, in, near Holborn. And uh, he exercised a very, very powerful preaching ministry. Crowds queued to hear him preach Sunday after Sunday. He was a very sensitive and pastoral man. He lectured on psychology and the well-being of the soul. He saw many people and helped them through times of uh, mental illness of one sort or another. But he suffered considerably from depression himself. One of the books that he's written, books of prayers, and that's been reprinted many, many, many times, um, is a book that was designed uh, to cover prayer life for 31 days of the month. And he titles it A Private House of Prayer. And in that private house of prayer, he divides every day into what he calls seven rooms. So you sort of start in one room and move on to another in your imagination. And uh, there is a room, as you can imagine, for adoration, praise and thanksgiving. There is a room for confession. Uh, There is a room for uh, petition, praying for ourselves. There's a room for intercession, intercession, praying for others. And a room for meditation. But there are two other important rooms. 
And they're rooms that don't always find a place in our prayers, I think. The first of all the rooms that we are invited to visit in his collection of prayers is entitled The Affirmation of the Divine Presence. And it's the place of beginning and simply affirms the greatness and the goodness of God. Things that have nothing to do with our feelings. God is. God is here. We are in God's presence. And then partway through our tour of the house, after confession, uh, there is a room called positive affirmation and reception. And this is the moment for allowing ourselves to receive what God offers of his mercy and grace. And if we're facing times that are more challenging than life simply being a bit of a struggle, if we're going through dark, deep darkness, it's a valuable discipline to engage in these affirmations because they're a way of opening up ourselves to the power and the love of God coming into us uh, at a time perhaps when we can't help ourselves and a reminder to us that we are not alone, we are not isolated, however we may be feeling. And it's a way of allowing the Spirit of God to penetrate into our darkness. And of course, when we come to pray, as we always do in our prayers, we pray in the name of Jesus. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we are praying through the one who knew what it was to feel alone and to experience the darkness as he hung on the cross. And through the darkness of the cross, the Father brought victory and resurrection. 